Hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library, with me, Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode, we're continuing the book The Wind Calls the Tune by Stanley Smith and Charles Violet. This is the eighth part of the reading, and we're on chapter nine. Now, if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. And there, for $5 a month, you can not only support the podcast, but also get access to exclusive Patreon-only book readings. Now on with the story. Chapter 9. Calms and Quandaries At 5pm on the day of our departure, we passed by a large tower of rock called Castello Branco. It stands alone in the sea a few hundred yards from land, halfway along the south shore of Fayal. From this rock we took our point of departure. The wind was a moderate southeasterly, and we hoisted the spinnaker. This large addition to our sail area, setting perfectly, acted on the Nova in the same way as a motorist putting his foot down on the accelerator. We now bowled along at a pleasant mile-eating speed. A few hours later, the sun sank in a cloudless sky and Fayal was becoming indistinct astern of us. We could still see a few windmills standing silhouetted against the darkening sky, the slowly turning arms seemed to be waving as a reluctant farewell. The wind, however, instead of dropping as it usually does at nightfall, gained in strength and white caps began to gleam in the dusk. We held on to the spinnaker in spite of the fact that there really was too much wind for it. We had to make the most of the favourable breeze, a thrilling night sail. The stars shone brightly from an indigo sky, the wind blowing hard, whistled through the rigging and sent the wave crests roaring down the rollers. Every now and then the Nova would plane on the top of the waves, which meant that for a few seconds at a time she would be surging along at about 18 knots. It was hard work at the helm, but we were going west at top speed. Very little water came over the stern, although in both our minds were thoughts of pooping. Just astern of us, a smooth depression in our wake seemed to form a gap in the broken water boiling past at deck level on either side. From the intense phosphorescence of the disturbed water, a greenish glow faintly illuminated the face of the man on watch till it seemed ghoulish in the dark night. A night filled with the sound of rushing, hissing water, wailing from the rigging, groans from the working tackle, and odd creaks and thuds from the loose gear below. We felt like two children lost in the dark on a wild night, yearning for the peace of security. The dawn came quickly in that still cloudless sky and brought reality to the eerie night. The wind still blew straight and true from astern and kept up its lusty strength, it is strange how quickly one can become over-optimistic, for we began to think of arriving in New York in about three weeks' time and beating all records for an east-west passage from the Azores. During the day, the man off-watch stored away the many bundles of vegetables and fruit which had been given to us. A large bunch of bananas was hung from the centre of the cabin top and it swayed about with every movement of the ship. We had brought wine, two round cheeses, the same as Joshua Slocum had, but no plums to complete the mixture that nearly killed him, and bottles of conserves and honey. The boat looked like a harvest festival collection. At five o'clock a longitude site was taken, and after it was worked out the dividers were found and the distance carefully calculated from Castello Branco, a record 
We had travelled 125 miles in 24 hours. Not bad going for a boat just under 16 feet long at the waterline. We never again equalled that day's run. On the morning of the 6th, the wonderful wind left us completely. Our escort of stormy petrels, which had picked us up again the previous afternoon, left us, and so did the clouds, the fish, and waves. The sun, going his slow, majestic way across the sky, poured on us all his fire. The sea grew oily and moved sluggishly up and down. We sat and gasped in the heat, cursing the elements, forgetting that only the day before we had been fulsome in their praise. Our sails hung limp and the gaff swung creakingly from side to side in response to the rounded swell. So we lowered everything to save wear and then there was silence, bringing a feeling of being suspended in mid-air. It felt as though the wind gods had whisked us away from land in order to have some sport at our expense. It was a teasing game they played during the following two long, hot, dreary days. Out of nowhere would come a cat spore of wind, and we would frantically trim sails and sheets to take full advantage of it. And then it would disappear completely, leaving us to curse futilely. If we had known then what we learned later, upon arrival in New York, we would have been much more satisfied with conditions as they were, for in a letter waiting for us from the Azores, we heard that a terrific gale with gusts of over a hundred miles an hour had swept the islands, and as we had only left a few days earlier, there was a fear among our friends that we would be in it and overwhelmed. What a contrast reality was to their imaginings. All the air must have left us to join in the battle over the Azores. Well, it's no use swearing at the elements when you're in a hurry. They are likely to become more spiteful. A school of yellowtail fish visited us and relieved our solitude. Their average length was about three feet, and they were colourfully marked with light green bodies, and their large tails a vivid yellow. Stanley's nose twitched like a cat looking at a goldfish in a bowl. With an intense expression on his face, he threw overboard every line and hook we had, with an amazing variety of bait, including banana skin, bacon fat, pulped biscuit, and when all of those failed, over went a hook, garnished with a green pea. Still no bite. So when he went off watch, instead of trying to sleep, he got out a rusty file, heated it on the Burmos stove, and then holding it to a keel bolt, hammered it into a semblance of a fishing spear. By this time the cabin must have got really hot, for perspiration was pouring down his forehead and off his nose, but oblivious to personal discomfort, so strong was the urge to catch a yellowtail, he worked on, and when he had tied his tortured ironwork to the bamboo flagstaff he was ready. Up on the deck, Charles laughed maliciously, for by now there wasn't a fish in sight, and it was time for Stanley's watch. The second day of the calm was much the same as the first. We broke the monotony by opening a large tin of prime British ham and cooking quantities of fresh Azores peas and new potatoes to eat with it. We knew the ham wouldn't keep, and on looking at the log, our main meal for successive days reads 8th of July, ham, potatoes and beans for dinner. 9th of July, 
ham, potatoes and carrots for dinner. 10th of July, ham, potatoes and peas for dinner. On this leg of the journey, our main meal was now preceded by a ration of delicious sanguinole wine, a variety which seemed to stand the churning without spoiling. The 8th of July was our third day of calm. Hurricanes would soon be swirling up the Gulf Stream, and we experienced again a strong feeling of frustration, like a person waiting for a bus that never arrives, and an important engagement to keep. A boat with an engine would have been able to make good progress, for the going was smooth. There was nothing we could do though but wait, yet our minds crept doubts as to the wisdom of our plan to attempt to go against wind and current. One alternative would be to turn in our tracks, if the wind ever returned, and head back to the Azores. Then we could sail southeast until we reached the northeast trades and follow the route of the old sailing ships. These used to sail south as far as the 20th parallel before altering course west for the West Indies, and from there on to any part of North America. We had to decide, and soon, which would be the quickest route for us, the long way with favourable winds, or the short way and the likelihood of a large percentage of headwinds. We talked the whole question over, as we always do, and decided to leave it open for three more days, and if there was no improvement, we would turn for the trades. In the late afternoon of the same day, we had a grim visitor, a shark about 15 feet long, complete with its sycophantic pilot, appeared by the side of our boat and began to scratch its hide on the bottom. Down in the cabin, this produced a nasty rasping sound, and the man off watch came on deck to see what was happening. As we both peered over the side, he showed his evil little eye and half turned exposing his greyish white belly. Then, perhaps thinking the time was not just yet, he levelled himself out so that we could see only his mud-green back. What repulsive creatures these are! This brute must have been in his prime, for we noticed that from his pectoral fins hung thin streams of dark green slime. Charles said, Well, here is a fine chance to test your new fish spear. Give him one with all your might on the back of his head. Stanley, thinking of all his labour, replied by way of excuse. Why, he might attack the boat. No, goaded Charles. These beasts are rank cowards at heart. So, gripping tight to the side of the cockpit with his left hand, he lunged with all his strength at the place suggested. A splash, a flurry in the water, then no shark, and Stanley was left holding a broken spear in the air. His rueful face was a picture of dismay, because his beloved implement had been damaged. At dusk, the cooler air revived our spirits and we chanted facetiously into the still night air, We want to go where the trade winds blow. Strangely enough, early next morning, we had a fresh east-northeasterly which enabled us to head straight for America. We could only conclude that the wind gods were perverse and had decided that we shouldn't go south where the trade winds blow. From the 9th, to the 13th of July, we had all sails set, including the spinnaker. They were days of wonderful sailing under ideal conditions. To grasp the helm and direct the Nova's bow towards America was sublime. To each slight alteration, she instantly responded and acted like an obedient creature of grace and beauty. This exciting sense of mastery and admiration is surely only experienced by sailors at their tillers under such conditions. 
It is worth the endless discomfort of bad days and anxious nights. We shall never forget that exceptional period. The wind was soft and warm, the sea a rich translucent blue contrasted here and there with the dazzling white of small crests. We were getting well tanned, for we never wore more than a pair of shorts. We had one nasty shock during this halcyon spell. Upon hearing strange noises coming from the little forecastle, the watertight door was unfastened and outpoured gallons of rusty water. We bailed out what remained and began to examine our store of biscuits which had been stowed there. And to our great consternation, three quarters of our supply was ruined by water seeping into the tins which must have been faultily soldered. We threw overboard all those completely ruined, but dried out the ones which were merely limp and damp. Soon, the boat was covered from stem to stern with a layer of wafer biscuits. Only one tin remained intact, apart from our weekly rations stored in the galley locker. Still, our appetites were small, and on adding up and counting the ones baking on deck, we thought we should have enough for at least three weeks, and we expected to cover the remaining 1,300 miles to New York by then. At 5pm on the 11th, a longitude was taken and showed that we had gained 103 miles that day, and in the week we had covered 500 miles. Oh yes, we would certainly be in New York before the end of July. During the night of the 11th, we had the thrill of getting in touch with a ship by flashing Morse on the new torch bought in Horta. This was the first time that we had ever managed to make contact. The man on the receiving end must have thought that there was a very strange person sending, because every few seconds a large swell would interpose itself between us and the ship, spoiling our letters. But after half a dozen attempts, the message, Report Nova Espero Lloyd's London, was acknowledged. Our additional flash of thanks was pointedly ignored. The next day, while scudding to the west, we gorged on bananas, which had suddenly ripened. We ate them with cream cheese, with biscuits, and as a special treat, we beat up six each in a cup with a large amount of sweetened milk. Delicious! Alas, all good things come to an end. At 10pm on the 13th, the wind, which had been getting lighter all evening, left us completely. Still, we optimistically imagined that it would return in the morning, so we enjoyed some fine music from London on our little radio, listening to it under the brilliant stars and the mellow light of a neap moon brought an air of magic to the night. All the time the music sent its vibrant chords into the stillness, a lonely little storm petrel flew round and round as though it too was enchanted. Suddenly, the music stopped to be succeeded by a talk on the day's happenings in Parliament. Gone in an instant was the magic, replaced by reality and the crudity of man. We turned in for a full night's sleep, a real enjoyment which we rarely experienced. We awoke to find a sea like a mirror, reflecting the sun and sending up a glare which hurt the eyes. It became impossible to see the horizon, for sea and sky merged into one, the brassy dome of the sky engulfed us, and our spirits, so easily changed by the elements, sagged lower and lower, but our barometer read the highest ever, 30.425 inches. In the afternoon, we escaped the heat for a while by plunging over the side. Charles, in a fit of bravado, shouted, To hell with this, I'm going to swim to America, it's quicker.
When he was about a hundred yards away, he looked back. The Nova looked distant and absurdly tiny, and then he became conscious of three miles of water underneath him and sharks. Sharks! That did it. The game was over. The Nova was home and comparative safety and records were broken on the swim back. He landed, panting, thinking of three miles down, down, down. We took advantage of having no watches to keep by bringing out all our soiled clothing and settling down to a wash day. We got a bowl of seawater and added a liberal dose of liquid seawater soap and popped in the article to be cleaned. After sundry drubbings, it was taken out and rinsed in the sea. Soon, the Nova looked like a suburban backyard on a Monday morning. By evening, the sea had become the flattest we had seen, completely devoid of colour. The horizon had disappeared, sea and sky having merged into a grey void so that we might have been encaged in an opaque globe hanging in space. The nothingness of it all was frightening, and as the light faded, so it seemed that our surrounding globe became smaller and smaller, threatening to engulf us. Only by going into the cabin and lighting the lamps could we escape the oppression of our surroundings. Well, that's the end of today's reading. I hope you enjoyed it. If you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner, where for $5 a month, you can help support this podcast. If you do want to engage with more of the content there, there's uh, unique videos, more podcasts, blogs, lots of different things, and a growing community of people who are interested in all things sailing. That's patreon.com forward slash the mariner. Well, that's all from the Mariner's Library today, and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.